0: Optimal minimal. at this altitude I can run flat out for a half mile before my
1: hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now even appropriate time. What if I the I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton.
0: This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Marketing wizards? Found them.
1: Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And
0: found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Greetings, lads and lasses. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. I'm sitting at my kitchen table with... Mr. Eric. Now I've always, this is embarrassing to say, and I've done this with a number of friends now. Is it Weinstein Weinstein? How do you say your last name? I think it's Weinstein. Weinstein. I agree. That's the more Germanic way to go about it. Now I'm going to read a short bio. I'm sure I'm going to bastardize this because I realized that we have so many wide ranging conversations and I was wondering and asking myself where to start. And I realized there's no real good place or no particular place to start. So you can start anywhere. So I'll start with your bio. Eric Weinstein, managing director of Teal Capital, PhD in mathematical physics from Harvard, research fellow at the mathematical institute of Oxford University. But as you and I have discussed, that does not quite capture the eclectic combination of life experiences that is Eric. So <laughs> what, what are some other sort of colorful aspects of this, uh,
1: this collage oh. that is yourself? All right. Um, so sometimes i i uh pretend to be an immigration expert uh particularly with respect to skilled labor um i'm also uh a member of uh the advisory board for a group called drugs over dinner trying to get a rational and healthy drug policy for the us i was pretty early uh on sounding the alarm over mortgage backed securities and uh failed to alert the world um with a bunch of other people who also failed but we, we gave it a ill college try um guess that makes it uncrowded trade it was well the problem is is that early is another name for wrong yeah, right, and right. also when you can't quite believe what you're saying that goldman Sachs and the rest of the world is going to blow up uh it's hard to have the, have the courage of your convictions but um Oh, gosh. I mean, I think... Um, Have you taken a lot of economics classes to inform all of these insights? I've dated uh, women and married them who've taken a lot of economics classes. So I, just, I haven't taken any. Um, but uh, in order to to get some attention for the work we'd done in economics, I decided to start referring to myself as an economist. I figured if I got called out um, then I would get to push the work in front of a a world that was uh, asking for my credentials, and so strangely, economists don 't call you out when you call yourself an economist, <laughs> and so I ended up as an economist rather than having the attention uh, that I was hoping to drag to to this new theory of gauge theoretic and geometric economics and to to provide just a little bit of context, which
0: I think is fairly normal for our interactions so i'm just going to read one line from an email exchange and this was from eric to me do you want to try a podcast on this and we'll get into maybe what this is psychedelics theories of everything and the need to destroy education in order to save it how did we first meet was it summit series or was it somewhere else
1: i think it was summit series i think uh you were talking about uh the potential of the human mind and how to unlock it. And I think I became very curious as to what the domain of applicability was and whether some of these techniques that would help you shoot baskets or learn tango could be applied to, let's say, quantum field theory, which seemed like kind of the next logical place to go after tango dancing. (laughs) And how, I think
0: many people would ask themselves, managing director of Keel Capital. So how does someone who, from a layperson's perspective, is a mathematician, uh, pretending to be an economist very effectively, or pretending up, to be a mathematician, or pretending well. to be a mathematician, uh, get recruited and end up working with Peter Teal Teal Capital.
1: It's a really good question. Um, I, I I I knew Peter slightly before. Um, geez, we are going to be just entering at a random point. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's quite good. It's the, quite the good. best I attempt I can make right. in trying so, to be quantum. So I I had uh, I had met. Uh, Peter when I I'd, I'd been sort of living in New York and playing in the Bay Area a little bit with the tech crowd and I uh, was told by some friends you have to come out uh for this crazy being human conference and so any conference named being human seemed too Californian to be a good idea but I was forced into coming out and there was a sort of a circle of people um which Peter was in and I was in um talking about what it, what it means, uh, to really look at the human condition from a rational, but also open-hearted perspective. And Peter and I started talking, and I told him that I, I was thinking that I might have a theory of everything that I should debut. And I think he probably, you know, haircut the possibility that what I was saying was true. But then I was invited to give these lectures, uh, at Oxford, the Simone special lectures, um, and it was and
0: Simone that the named after the Simone who went to space also created Microsoft
1: Office. Charles Simone. Yeah. I think he was like the original engineer at Microsoft mm-hmm. and, um, and he had endowed a professorship in at Oxford where, which was held is held now by Marcus de Soto after Richard Dawkins held it, which has so, some lectures attached. And I was invited to give lectures under this program and it, uh, you know, I was giving technical talks, but a story or two came out about how, um, a potential theory of everything, uh, was being debuted. And I guess, um, Peter probably saw that he invited me to a quiet conference he was holding in the South of France uh, shortly afterwards. And then he invited me to a breakfast after that. And at the breakfast, um, I think I was midway through, uh, some breakfast sausage and he just blurts out. He says, you have to leave New York. And I, I didn't understand why. And I said, really? And and go where? He says, you could come here. And I said, and, and do what? And he said, you could work for me. So I didn't know whether he was like suffering from too much sleep, but it uh, turned out he was quite serious. And, uh, it's been one of the most, uh, rewarding intellectual relationships of my life. He's just a, a stunning, a sparkling mind and somebody who has not only the courage of his convictions, but has been right so many times and over enough things that he has had the freedom to uh, break with all tradition when he thinks the world is wrong and one or two people may have it right, which is that's exactly my cup of tea. Did he have a clear idea of what you would be doing
0: when he hired you or made the offer?
1: Um, probably less, important to him is my guess is, is that, uh, the first issue is, is that there are, are, it's so difficult to think for yourself. I mean, I find it very difficult to think for myself. I have all sorts of ideas in my head that aren't mine. I'm subjected to all sorts of pressures I find difficult to resist. And so I think Peter is looking for the tiny universe of people who are attempting to think things through from first principles and that's, you know, it's become very tough because social socially constructed reality is so much a part of our lives. So I think first his feeling would be find the people who are capable of uh, seeing something really new and then figure out what to do with them later.
0: Escaping the, or averting the consensus reality as you've mentioned, whenever possible, whenever possible, what outside pressures do you find tempting or difficult to mitigate
1: Oh, well, I mean, everybody wants to, uh, to be loved, to fit in the, the, the fear that happens when you start swimming away from the shore, um, that you're not going to find uh, a next Island, um, before your strength gives out. I think it's very rational to be afraid of thinking for yourself because you may very, very easily find yourself at odds with the community on which you depend. And I think, um, for some of us it's just a compulsive behavior. It's not even necessarily the smartest evolutionary strategy. It's just it's hard to do it any other way. Hugging the shore. Well, or or not. I mean, if you if you if you keep trying to screw your eyes up so you can see the world the way other people's are, are people are reporting that they see it and it just doesn't work. Um, you realize at some point that uh, it's a losing battle. You might try you might as well try being yourself.
0: What uh is the first example that comes to mind of a time when you had that fear of swimming away from the yeah. consensus and facing the, the scrutiny or,
1: uh, criticism of people in a given community. Well, sometimes it happens by accident. So I remember, for example, being in a guitar store in Philadelphia and having a crowd of people gather around as they played something badly And I couldn't figure out why they would want to listen to somebody who is not very good at classical guitar. And this isn't like bragging that I'm great at classical. I was really not that good. And it turned out that uh, I had taught myself from sheet music. And I believe that the notation for using your thumb is to use the letter P, which I interpreted as pinky. So I was using my weakest finger for everything that needed to be done by my strongest finger. And so my guitar was completely, completely wrong. And, that was a you know a clear example of um, well this didn't come from a guitar teacher it didn't come from a, a normal experience with music it came from teaching yourself something and, and having the scars uh, to prove it um, so I think in that case uh, you also learn how much power there is that you you can shortcut all sorts of things so as you know you've you've showed us with uh, the Pareto principles and uh, trying to eschew uh, the work of the 10,000 hours, um, you start to look, realize that the world can, is meant to be jailbroken. And, and then you get into really scary stuff where you come up with political conclusions that aren't shared by others. So mm-hmm. for example, um, I don't have the usual convictions of my groups about immigration um, I am of the opinion that what most people think of as progressive immigration is actually regressive. And so, uh, you know, at some point I came out with a free market model to open borders, but without adversely affecting American workers. And have you written about that? Oh yeah. I, I published was- a peer reviewed, uh, model for how to do it for a layperson interested
0: in exploring your opinion on that. Uh, or your perspective on that is that? Would you point them to a given
1: paper? Or sure. What? There's one called "Migration for the Benefit of All" in the International Labor Review, I think of 2002. And the funny thing about this paper is is that it takes what uh, U.S. corporations always claim they want, which is access to any workers anywhere in the world, and it achieves it through a market uh, mechanism. But unfortunately, what they were really interested in wasn't the small gain in efficiency that comes from being able to hire on a global market. They were really much more interested in the wealth transferred from American workers to American, uh, business owners. And so, um, it was a great example that they thought they'd make a free market argument. Um, but in fact, they weren't interested in the free market advantage. They were interested in transfer payments. And so when you give them a free market model, they lose all interest uh, in the free market, which is, I think just really funny.
0: You, you mentioned guitar. I, I can recall we had dinner at your house, which was not drugs over dinner. It was death over dinner where we talked about oh, yes. death. And uh, I think that was somehow related to was it NPR. Or uh, some radio station. Yeah, that Capital was, Capital Radio. Some NPR Capital affiliate. Radio. That's right. And we discussed death over dinner. But one thing I noticed at your home was that you have a lot of musical instruments. When did you start experimenting
1: with music? Um, and how many musical instruments have you experimented with? Uh, am I right that the federal government hasn't made musical instruments illegal? So I've been experimenting <laughs> with musical instruments for some time. <laughs> the... Uh, I, I think at some point you learn that music is an abstraction and that each particular instrument is just a, a way to instantiate the same common abstraction. And so this was extremely powerful for me because. Could you,
0: I, you explain what that, what you mean by that?
1: Well, I don't really hear music very well. Um, I don't have a lot of intuitive feel for it. To me, it looks like systems. And the idea that music was so highly systematized and that this was covered up by the standard relationship that we pick up where we take music lessons, we learn to read music in this country. Um, lots of people are bad at reading music and lots of people are bad at following instructions. But you find that in other areas of the world in which notation isn't a big part of musical education, people very casually pick up an instrument and start playing it. And I think it's because that's the systems if you will, the math behind the music is so powerful that it allows you to improvise. It allows you to compose and to understand that there are canonical songs. At some point, for example, I wrote a tiny computer program uh, in Python and put it in a tweet. And its only purpose was to reproduce the chord progression for Paco Bell's Canon as an algorithm. Did but, you say Taco Bell? No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I can't believe that I heard that correctly. Okay, I thought I said pocklebells Bell's Oh, there we go. All right. Yeah. <laughs> now, when you're talking about the ability to improvise, pick up an instrument, and start playing, I mean, Paul McCartney, I believe, is is one example of that. I, I, oh, I he's heard such some... a
1: gifted, intuitive musician. I'm not, a... but I heard, and this could be
0: completely off base, that he, at least for a period of time, couldn't read music. I... And is is that because humans have potentially some type of innate grammar that they are for music, uh, in the same way they might have some type of, uh, innate language, uh, innate language grammar, like uh, along the lines of a Chomsky, uh, and his, and his theories, or is it something else?
1: I, I think you're right. I mean, I think that it, 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 comes down a lot of it to the physics of a vibrating string or air column, so if you look at the harmonics, uh, the patterns of vibration that are encoded into simply taking a cat gut and stretching it um, between you know, a wall and the, the ground and then twanging it. Uh, there's You've seen my spa room in other words, <laughs> <laughs> um, that so much of our musical system is in the math and in the physics of a vibrating string. Um, there's really, You know, there's one crazy, uh, innovation, which is even temperament, um, which the West figured out, which has to do with a strange math fact that if you raise the number two uh, for twice the frequency, which gives us the octave to the 19th power, and then take the 12th root thereof, that's almost exactly equal to three. And that weird numerical accident is what makes it possible to both have, um, extremely beautiful intervals but have them also so regular that you can do harmony and 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 make chords and i don't think most musicians probably even know why we use a 12-tone system it's re-
0: and that's uh so the, what you just described before the 12-tone system that's even temperament yeah. so that's, that's called so so i've always been uh somewhat insecure as it relates to music, I've never thought I was how interesting. innately capable of being good with musical instruments. And I grew up trying a lot of musical instruments and quitting them, uh, whether it was piano, trumpet, etc., cetera. The drums is, are, one example or exception rather where I've, I have so much fun playing even poorly that I will continue to practice. Uh, on the flip side though, so how many, if you had to just take a stab, how many, how many different instruments would you say you've, toyed around with in one capacity or another.
1: I would say that the the ones that I regularly check in with would be mandolin, harmonica, guitar, piano, and occasionally some funkier stuff than that. And you've but you've also dug into
0: natural human languages.
1: Yeah, what languages have you in the past given I a to go? go? Well, oh gosh. Um, I mean, the ones I love, sure. Turkish and Indonesian, um, were great fun to learn about and learn some of, uh, Russian is extremely emotional, but grammatically fairly unforgiving. Uh, uh, I enjoyed the little bit of Thai that I started trying to learn. Um, because tones are not a big part of any of the other languages that I've tried. But when I tried a little bit of Vietnamese, the tones were so hard that there was no satisfaction. I spent three weeks and I couldn't say my first word convincingly.
0: Why do you, and I promise this is going somewhere. Uh, Not that it has to, but why? Well, it's a question I get asked oftentimes is why do you study these languages that don't seem to have any practical application in your life? How would you answer that?
1: Um, like Turkish, for example, there was a girl. (laughs) All right. Let's (laughs) try another one. Indonesian, same answer. Well, Indonesian is, uh, is just brilliant. Um, it's everything that can go right with a language for a a U.S. language learner has happened to Indonesian. So for example, it's not inflected for tense. If you want to say I came, you would say I already come. Right. Right. So you'd, uh, if you wanted to, st- it's not injected for, uh, inflected for number. So if the word for child is anak, the word for children is anak squared or anak like knock. anak. Knock. Yeah, yeah. Orang orang. Orang right. orang. orang. You, person. Person. Yeah. Um, for those people wondering, orang hutan, man of the, the forest. forest. Very yeah. good. Um, so, and then it's in a Latin script. And so I would say that if you wanted to figure out your bang for your buck with a language, try Indonesian if nothing else has worked for you. You may find that uh, you have over a 100 million new friends and uh, a facility you never thought you could develop. Yeah, Indonesian super cool. I remember spending a month in Bali
0: and just drilling down into it. And it was such a relief after… Studying languages like Mandarin, which similar to Vietnamese, is just so unforgiving. If you don't get the tones right, you could have a vocabulary of 5,000 words and no one will be able to communicate with you in any meaningful way. <laughs> I,
1: I think also when you try one of these languages that's less common to learn, um, people are so much more appreciative than if you're yet the nth person they've met who's trying to speak French. Yeah, the psychic payback and the, gra- the
0: gratitude that you get is uh, a factor that... I think is undervalued because people will say, well, the utility of Spanish is X because I could travel to Y number of countries and talk to a Z number of people. And it's like, well, that's might be true. But if you say, go to Greece, as I did at one point and pick up 20 different lines and make sure you throw in two or three that are kind of ridiculous just for comedic effect, you're the, the, the sort of added value to your, say, vacation there will be 100x versus, say, a 2x with Spanish, right? I completely and, agree. And uh, that makes it so much fun. Turkish, oddly enough, and we won't, for those people who are not interested in languages, we're not going to spend the entire time talking about languages, but I'm going to try to tie this into music. Uh, Turkish, for instance, and this is pointed out to me by Turk, is grammatically extremely similar to Japanese. It's really, really weird. I mean, eerily similar. So it was very easy for me to start to pick up Turkish from having uh, spent time as an exchange student in Japan. And so there brings up all sorts of interesting theories about migration patterns and so on from long, long ago. But uh, what does, if anything, studying music have in common with studying natural languages? Because the latter is where I'm more comfortable. Even though I thought I was bad at languages until... You know, halfway through high school.
1: Yeah. Um, I think that these areas of that are so intrinsically human, um, and we don't even realize that there are these systems that are undergirding it. Um, I think that there's at least that as a formal s- similarity where, um, you know, until, until Chomsky and, and his thoughts on grammar, uh, we didn't understand the way in which this could be potentially an innate process. Um, just the way the, you know, the hairs in, in your ear and in, in the organ of Cordy, you know, may predispose you to love, uh, particular intervals, you know, and you hear wise men say, you know, that's really going from the fundamental frequency to three halves times that frequency back to the fundamental frequency. And if you can hear the difference between that and going to two times, it would be somewhere. I can't do that very well, but you know, these iconic intervals are really based on physics. If you think about your phoneme production. Um, the way Phony production. Yeah. So the sounds that you can make with your mouth are really based on a five dimensional lattice, which I didn't understand. <laughs>
0: I don't understand that either.
1: I'll need you to explain. Well, you could, you can either turn your nasalization on or off. You can have your vocal cords vibrating. So vocalization can be on or off. So those are two degrees of freedom. You can have your lips in one of several positions, a third degree. Like and then, in Chinese retroflex,
0: that's a hard one. There you go. So instead of saying "那是什么事," <laughs> si si oh, fuck that up. Hold on, "那是什么事情." <laughs> si si like in Taiwan, go to Beijing, and they say "那是什么事情." Si si they do that like <laughs> Oh, I see. <laughs> it sounds about. very
1: like Bengali and Portuguese with the heavy Oh sh- uh, yeah, they love doing that. Anyway, not not to interrupt. So that's three degrees of freedom. And then you have where on the on the tongue, the the where, where, what location on the roof of the mouth uh, your tongue is attempting to make contact, and how how raised or lowered it is. And so these five degrees of freedom generate the phonemes. And if you ask, you know, opera singers to sing in a really squirrely language that they don't know, like maybe they know Italian and French, but they don't know Hungarian. um, They may be able to produce all of these sounds because they've been forced to understand exactly what the degrees of freedom are to produce the sounds, even if they don't know what they mean. Right. They have the, the
0: conscious awareness and control of uh, oral articulation, never used that before, but much like a, uh, say, a ballerina with a vocabulary of different types of, of pirouettes and, and movements would be able to replicate a lot of what you would find in tango because they have this, this vocabulary and awareness. Uh, as a side note for, for people who, uh, might be wondering, <laughs> Japanese people have a really tough time learning almost any foreign language because they have a very, very limited set of phonemes in their language. Oh, interesting. Uh, so they kind of got short changed when, you know, God was handing out sounds. And, uh, which is why, say, with, with R and L, you know, they have de do as opposed to R or L. But as soon as you point out to them the position of the tongue, like la you touch the tip of your tongue to the back of your teeth then all of a sudden just like a snap of the fingers they can figure it out but no one's ever tried to explain it to them they're just like repeat this sound repeat this sound but once you explain that that one factor and you're like no no touch your tongue to the back of your teeth they're like oh i got it and of course it takes practice to do uh quickly but um that is why japanese have a very tough time with almost every language spanish maybe one exception uh let's let's come back to something you said earlier which is navigating from first principles uh, cuz i think this is a really important concept to understand what what does that mean
1: i think that and why is it important well very often We uh, have some spectrum of difference that we're allowed. Uh, Frequently in politics or news, somebody will talk about the Overton window. What can we discuss? What can't we discuss? The Uh, Overton window. The Overton window. You mean in the
0: context of, say, a debate or
1: a flash? So, for example, when Donald Trump said that he wanted to temporarily ban Muslims from entering the U.S., that was considered outside the Overton window. It was not something that was discussable. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that a lot of us, uh, may benefit from the Overton window, this idea that we're going to make certain ideas, uh, too hot, too dangerous, um, for people to express and play company. But on the other hand, what we've started to do is to, uh, hamstring all the, uh, cognitive power. Um, in our contrarian thinkers where they don't feel comfortable or safe thinking aloud. Uh, if somebody tells you, for example, uh, or asks you the question, do you believe intelligence is perfectly e- evenly distributed, uh, between genders or among ethnic groups? Statistically, it would be crazy to say yes. I believe it's perfectly, uh, distributed. Uh, On the other hand, socially, it would be crazy to suggest that it isn't perfectly distributed. And so we have all of these um, really funny situations where the top-down thinking tells us uh, what's acceptable and what isn't, but the bottom-up leads us to ask all sorts of questions that are framed out, if you will, uh, by the usual terms of discussion. And I think that... This is, uh, you know, this is really animating a lot of people who feel that, um, social justice, which they always thought was a positive, is starting to metastasize into kind of a thought police where,
0: yeah, well, it's, it seems to have turned into this, uh, sort of internet lynch mob version of McCarthyism, in there a way. There you go. And actually, I'm going to put this out there because I was, I was thinking about writing a blog post about this, but blog posts take a long time to write. So I'm just going to, there's a term that I, there currently isn't much of a penalty for labeling people, uh, whatever it might be, fill in the blank, ist. Right. So you can be accused and guilty until proven innocent of being sexist, racist, fill-in-the-blank, misogynist, whatever it might be, uh, classist, you name it. Right. And that can be really damaging to people who are accused of such things, often with no evidence or very questionable evidence, uh, or even contrary evidence. Uh, and so what I was hoping is there should be a term that you can apply to people who go on these witch hunts and apply these labels. And I was thinking that bigoteer could be a good one. Well, that's good. What do you think? So that therefore, like, if, if a journalist, let's just say, is... Taking the lazy route for cheap applause, i.e., ch- cheap page views. Right. And they're just accusing people of being uh, these uh, really career damaging things, like sexist or racist or whatever, that they themselves could then be labeled a well known bigoteer for instance. And then there would be some type of social consequence, which I don't see currently to acting in such a haphazard and damaging
1: way. So currently we have this other weird term, SJW for social justice, justice warrior. <laughs> um, so I, I like bigoteer. Uh, why don't we try it in the wild and see what happens?
0: Yeah, I'd love uh, to to hear anyone's thoughts on this, but bigoteer, and, the, and I thought a lot about this because I, I figured you needed a term that was sort of uh, phonetically similar enough, we're just talking about phonemes, like phonetically similar enough to an already loaded term yeah, So that people would immediately get the negative connotation. Like you can't being called a bigoteer, even though I, as far as I know, it hasn't existed, can't really be a good thing. I mean, you have like bigot and then you have the tier of, in most people's minds associated with racketeering or something else. Uh, But does a decent job of kind of describing the, uh, the sin against intellectual honesty. That is, you know, what we're talking about this type of out of control. So social justice, uh, warriorship, um, but I agree with you that it's, I, I think that uh, even more than top down, this, the phenomenon is, is so puzzling in a way because it, it seems like people are creating prisons of their own making. Uh, and in creating these lynch mobs or participating in them, uh, you're creating this momentum for this type of activity that ultimately has to come back and bite you in the ass or it'll just create these barriers to honest communication. And it it. sorry, I'm like up on my soapbox now that we brought up this stuff. It it also seems like, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, but the oftentimes the most important conversations to have are the most uncomfortable that would fall outside of this overton window.
1: Well, by definition, and and even the, the conversation that you most want to have to try to remediate the, uh, Long-term problem is prevented um, by the evident relish that some bigotiers, if you will, uh, <laughs> uh, in, in, the the relish that they obviously in, enjoy and take for themselves in sort of taking settling for the short ride rather than really trying to get some kind of structural change. And I think that because the level of distrust is so high, uh, in the U.S. at the moment, um, we have a problem that people are trying to shut down conversation because they just don't know where it's going to go. And so as soon as anyone starts talking about something sensitive, um, you, you know, you can always trot out, check your privilege or something uh, that doesn't even have to be, uh, it can be completely content independent because you know, everybody's enjoying some privilege at the moment. And so if you're spending all of your time checking it, you're probably not going to be able to say much of anything. So I want
0: to, I want to shift to a very serious topic and that is, uh, Kung Fu Panda.
1: Oh boy. It's It's getting weighty.
0: It's getting weighty. Now I recall visiting, uh, the offices of Teal Capital and we had a, a fun lunch chat with, with a whole group of folks. And, uh, I remember going to your office and seeing all sorts of toys, of various types, and then a, uh, I guess a figurine of Kung Fu Panda. What is your relationship to Kung Fu Panda? Uh,
1: this is, this is emotional, embarrassing, and rather weighty, but I, I, I went reluctantly. I did. I, I can't say that I relished going to a, uh, children's film, uh, even though I had two kids who were excited to see it. Uh, but my wife said it would be a good idea. And as I sat there in the theater, I got deeper and deeper into the story. And when the film was finally over, I found myself weeping. And were your kids okay with that? I don't think anybody was okay with that. <laughs> it was it was a little weird. And what I realized was that it was the only film that I'd ever seen that struggled with the issue that I felt almost defines my my quest, which is why can't a self teacher leave pupils? And if you think about that for a second, you realize that Einstein wasn't successful in leaving any Einstein's and Francis Crick didn't leave Francis Crick's and Winston Churchill didn't leave any Winston Churchill's. If there was some way for a Newton to leave a Newton dependably the world would be a completely different place. And what Kung Fu Panda was trying to do, uh, in my opinion, was to struggle with this question of how would an innovator leave a successor when it's his time to go. And, um, at some point, somebody on Quora asked a question, you know, this sort story doesn't make any sense to me. How does a, uh, Panda slob become the ultimate Kung Fu warrior? And I wrote up my explanation and the thing is probably the most viral thing I've ever <laughs> written. Um, what is the,
0: what is the title for people who And we'll link to this in the show notes for everybody. Just fourhourworkweek.com forward
1: slash. I think it's, how does Poe become an awesome kung fu warrior in the film Kung Fu Panda? Something like yeah, that. And I'm sure if we look up your name in Kung Fu Panda, it'll pop right up. And so my, my claim was that. The original innovator in the film is, uh, is a turtle, which is an even more inappropriate Kung Fu archetype than a Panda because they're obviously slow moving and the turtle works out the secrets of harmony and focus at the pool of sacred tears. But when the kingdom is threatened by a Kung Fu student, uh, of great ability, who's gone wrong, um, all that the kingdom can muster is the usual collection of overtrained students. So think uh, aspirants to Princeton and Stanford and Harvard. Um, and so these are all the kids who would get like perfect SATs and have amazing extracurricular activities. But fundamentally what we don't realize is that they've all been rendered um, incomplete in a way because they can't tap into the self teaching modality because they have been so thoroughly overtaught. And so the turtle recognizes that the Panda is the only one who can save the day. And all the turtle has to go on in choosing a successor is that the Panda has innovated one silly thing, which is to turn a fireworks cart into a makeshift rocket to jump a wall. And so from this humble beginning, um, the magic unfolds. And it's it's really about the magic of how a, a, one self-teacher leaves a successor and solves the problem.
0: Have you come to any conclusions or beliefs uh, outside of that essay uh, related to how autodidacts or Newtons can leave Newtons when they travel on from this world?
1: I think so. I I can't prove it, but I think where I'm headed with this is that most of us who wind up using these sort of strange high agency hacks to negotiate the world have some kind of a traumatic birth that we, we may flatter ourselves that we're in touch with reality. But in fact, Reality is a second best strategy. If you're lucky, your family works pretty well and you never leave social reality. It's only when something goes wrong that you discover, okay, the world doesn't work in any way the way I was told. Here's the underlying structure. And what you then have to realize is if you want to do this at scale, You've got to stop relying on these traumatic births. It's like you're waiting for somebody to get bit by a spider to become Spider-Man. Now you have to do this in a more controlled fashion. You have to harvest spiders. That's right. <laughs> you've got to you've got to regularize it. So I think what we need to do is we need to create a completely second uh, secondary um parallel educational structure for people who are going to be in the high agency creativity discovery idiom, idiom and realize that we know how to ex- impart expertise, but we don't know how to impart creativity and genius. What do you, could you define high agency? Um, sure. Uh, high agency. we just explain what you mean by it. Well, I think what I mean is, uh, are you constantly, when you're told that somebody, something is impossible, is that the end of the conversation or does that start a second dialogue in your mind uh, how to get around whoever it is that's just told you that you can't do something. Um, so how am I going to get past, uh, this bouncer who told me that I can't come into this nightclub? How am I, um, going to start a business, uh, when my credit is terrible and I have no experience? You're, you're constantly looking for what is possible in a kind of MacGyverish sort of a way. Um, and that's your approach to the world. Uh,
0: I'm not going to take us off the rails here. Have you seen The Martian?
1: Yes. Did
0: you love it? The ultimate high agency film. I just saw it last night, man. It was just like two hours of MacGyver on
1: steroids. I loved it. Yeah. Uh. And and I'm glad you brought it up. I think it heralds uh, a return, at least uh, among Americans to our previous way of being. I think there was some terrible thing that happened starting around 1970 that is just cracking now. So really about 45 years of uh, a low agency, super safe, timid, frightened um, kind of societal aspiration. If you just stay on track, can we keep the American prosperity machine going? I think we now realize that you can't do it without uh a bunch of really marginal characters, people who have might be described as disruptive, have bad attitudes. Um and these are my people and they're tough to deal with and I don't always enjoy them. But I do think that without them, uh it's not much of a football team. What can
0: someone do who who's listening to this, let's say, and they're they live in a community where uh that is Clearly low agency and they want to train themselves to be able to look at options C, D, E, and F when people say, do you want A or B? Right. Uh, or if they're given, let's say the, the no from the bouncer, from the admissions officer, from the fill in the blank, they look for a way around it instead of just being stopped in their tracks. How can someone, are there any recommendations or tools or resources, exercises that they could use? to cultivate that higher
1: agency? Well, there's. I don't think there's a community on earth where somebody uh, isn't modifying their car beyond what's street legal. I don't think that there's any community in which nobody is cooking something up uh, in, in the basement uh, that probably is prescribed by law. I don't think that there's a community on earth where somebody isn't trying to um break into their own computer in order to see how it works from the inside. So there are high agency people everywhere. What there isn't necessarily is critical mass. And I think that, you know, sometimes I refer to the Bay area uh, as the innovation ghetto. So uh, you have all of the people who are too high agency to, uh, to behave properly and wait their turn in the rest of the country. And so they've been given like the nicest piece of real estate. An ungodly amount of cash, and um, you know the, the pleasure of each other's company. But they've been told, you know, okay, you have to stay. At the, the terms of your probation is that you have to stay within the Bay Area. And so, uh, what I'd love to see is I'd love to see more of us violating our parole and going into the rest of the country and um, trying to bring that uh, irreverent spirit. Because I think one of the things that the U.S. still has over, let's say, a competitor. Uh, like China is that we tolerate the middle finger. Um, It is perfectly acceptable to be disruptive uh, here in San Francisco, where you and I are conducting this interview. Whereas uh, if I'm told that my child is disruptive uh, in Kansas uh, or South Carolina, I'm probably being told that uh, he's being sent home for bad behavior. So I think it's really important to start respecting um, our marginal citizens of greatest ability um, and looking for the unusual personality types that are uh, irreverent and uh, committed enough to making things happen and and to really do things. What,
0: this is going to seem like a detour, but it might be related. What book or books
1: have you gifted most to other people? Oh, there's so for my science friends, I tell them to read the emperor of scent. Um, By Chandler Burr about, uh, my friend Luca Turin. And it talks about a renegade scientist being, um, stymied by, uh, the journal Nature, by various conferences, by the, uh, established research centers. And it's just a wonderful introduction to how, um, the dissident voice is marginalized. And because Luca's such a, uh, a genius of olfaction and chemistry, he's able to uh, take a perspective which may or may not be true, um, but keep pushing it forward and, and battling it through. So that's one of my favorites. Uh, I have a, another weird recommendation, which is this book, uh, *Heraclitian Fire*. <laughs> by <laughs> see if I can spell this. By all right, Heraclitian Fire. By uh, by uh, Chagref, um, who is the guy who effectively shorted. Watson and Crick. He told Watson and Crick that he didn't think that they were very good, very smart. And that they were sort of, they didn't know their chemistry. They, they weren't qualified to work on, on DNA. And it turned out that they got it right and he got it wrong. And when I heard that there was somebody who bet against Watson and Crick, I thought, well, this is just going to be the laugh of the century. But it turned out just to short those guys required another genius. And, uh, and it, he writes about trying to suppress, uh, these guys and failing because they were right and he was wrong and he has enough presence of mind, uh, to struggle with it. So the, these are books that I think are, uh, incredibly powerful because they talk about, um, what it's like to be one against the many.
0: If you were advising, say, a, you might hate this question. Uh, if you were advising, say, uh, a senior in high school, non-technical... No, I'm sorry. Senior in college. Non-technical... Probably had, too late. Probably too late. Well, well, let's just say that... I mean, that was me, right? So, Okay. All right. Uh, and I had, you know, fairies and sugar plums in my head about Silicon Valley and mm-hmm. wanted to come here and, and attempt to build something amazing. Uh, what what books resources would
1: you suggest or what advice would you give? Um, well, first of all, if you can do anything else with your life, uh, other than innovate, other than create, go do that. Don't come. Um, if you're still here and listening saying, okay, I can't really do anything else. Uh, Meaning you have a compulsion that you cannot resist. Yeah. Fundamentally you are zagging when other people are zigging. You're not even thinking outside the box. You haven't seen the box for years. If that's who you are, my feeling is just get here. And I can't promise that your first week or your first month and a half is going to be the greatest week or month and a half of your life, but you will fall in with people. There's there's enough um, open hearted, uh, assistance that's given. There's enough money that there's a different culture of abundance. Now that may not last this per- more than this particular cycle. Um, but even if this is a bubble, uh, I think it'll re inflate in the same place because fundamentally we've, get, we've run out of all other options other than innovation. If we don't create and we don't think our way out of this, uh, I don't think we have a great plan for steady state. So it's, it's grow or die. And, uh, that means that we'll have another bubble and, uh, bubbles aren't terrible things. A lot of wonderful things happen during them.
0: Uh, what to you is the most powerful idea or few ideas, uh, in zero to one or the material that helped generate that from the Mm. class that Peter taught, which was transcribed by Blake masters.
1: Yeah. So while there's, so the entire book is about what to do. If you think you have a secret, if you really understand something, the rest of the world is confused about. And it's an important truth. Zero to one says here are the, all the ways you might want to make that work. I think the problem is the average person has never had an idea a really powerful personal idea. Um, and so most people don't have a single secret. And so the real reason most people shouldn't start a company is that they don't know or believe anything that the rest of the world, um, knows, uh, thinks of as being nonsense. Right. And so this is, this is the engine behind the book. and, What's disturbing is to watch people reading this book, not realizing that it's the whole thing is predicated on you. Ha, you must have a secret, and it's try to imagine somebody building a car with no engine. It doesn't really matter how nice you get the upholstery; it's not going to work. <laughs>
0: Now I, there, I suppose there are different schools of thought here as with many different domains. Some people would say, well, you either have the hardwiring to come up with these secrets or spot these, uh, unpopular opinions or, uh, unpropagated opinions that very few people or no other people hold. Uh, then there are the folks, and I tend to lean this way, uh, who think that that can be facilitated. Right. By mm. forcing people to ask, for instance, absurd questions. Right. So if you had to 10x, not just 10% increase, but like 10x your output in whatever it might be, how would you do it? And forcing people to break whatever systems they might have in place. Right. The current incremental approach to what they're doing, these minute optimizations won't answer the question. Right. They, they have to delve into this kind of terra incognito, things they haven't explored uh do you think this can be do you think it can be taught or you can help people to get better at spotting or or coming up with these these secrets seeing things that other people don't see
1: well yeah I, I do and I think that um in part this is why it's so difficult coming back to the sort of kung fu panda pedagogy question um assume that I Hit one or two of these, uh, secrets and, and I am successful at them. It doesn't have to be in business. It could be in science. Could be in literature. Anywhere. The problem is, is that you want to lead someone through the process of succeeding at something and seeing what blocked, what blocked the path. And what do you mean by that? Well, here's a problem I give people. Um, uh oh. Well, no, I haven't solved it. Oh, okay. If I'd solved it, then in fact, nobody's oh, solved it.
0: I was it getting sort of pre McKinsey interview know. jitters. Okay. How many golf balls can you fitness? No, in no, this, seven, so, no.
1: this is exactly what I hate about those problems is if the, if there are answers in the back of the book, it's not a good problem. Hmm. It has to be an actual problem that the, the asker doesn't know. So I don't know how to solve the problem of the umbrella. There's nothing I like about umbrellas. They, seriously, Tim, they blow up in wind so that they're easily wrecked under the conditions that they're supposed to be in which they're supposed to be used. They uh, have these long metal spikes at about eye level. So they're clearly a safety hazard. Your legs always get drenched. There you go. Everything about the umbrella strikes me as wrong. Now, what I believe is, is that there are, and I've seen people try to innovate in the umbrella situation. Uh, there are ones that have air blowers that blow the water away from you. There are funky, um, folding designs, but I am almost positive that there exists some very simple mechanical design that would, uh, improve the umbrella. On the other hand, I don't have that same confidence about the coffee mug. Yes. You could put some electronics in it. You could make it smarter than it is, but, fundamentally it seems to be in such a simple state that I wouldn't think that I should innovate there. So if I can give the example where there is a solution known luggage before 1989, just going to ask you about this. All right. So, um, it turns out that nobody really knew how to do wheeled luggage before 1989.
0: (laughs) It's just mind blowing. Yeah.
1: Anyway, yeah. It, well, it's hard to imagine that like the whole world had their, wed- their heads wedged so far up there that they couldn't think to put in these large, uh, recessed wheels with a telescoping handle. And this was the invention of a guy named Robert Plath, who was a pilot for Northwest, I think. And in one fell swoop, uh, he convinced everyone that their old luggage was terrible. So even though there wasn't a lot of growth, he created the growth because nobody wanted their old luggage, and you know you could compare these discrete brainwave innovations um, across fields. So, for example, in uh, in table tennis in the early fifties, the worst player on the Japanese team at the Bombay Table Tennis Championships was this guy uh, Hiroshi Satoj, who and he um, glued two foam. Uh, expanses to both sides of a sandpaper uh, table tennis bat and nobody um, could cue off of the sounds because it changed the sound of the ball oh, it's like and having a silencer on exactly a it's like if so if you put a suppressor on your paddle um suppressor just the fact that you use that
0: word makes me think that you have a bunch of firearms hiding in your basement but anyway
1: i can either confirm i digress
0: right. <laughs> but
1: but the the, <laughs> the, the uh The idea that the worst player on one of the lower rated teams would be the undisputed champion simply through an innovation that was that profound shows you what the power of one of these ideas is, that the power laws are just so unbelievably in your favor if you win that uh, it makes it worthwhile. Or Dick Fosbury, who went uh, backwards over the high 1968. jump. 1968. You got it. Very good. Ridiculed
0: and then mimicked <laughs> and eventually standard. Yeah. Uh, so in the case of, say, the the umbrella or the luggage, uh, is there a process for trying to tackle and innovate in these areas along the lines of something you might find at, say, an IDEO? or exercises that you guys do at Teal Capital when looking at different markets or trying to assess, say, an idea and its its validity or promise in a market? Are there any particular questions, I guess, is what I'm asking, that you find very useful when trying to spot these,
1: these breakthrough ideas? Well, it depends in, um, situation by situation. So for example, in science, I try to use various intellectual arbitrage techniques where if you have a bunch of smart people who've been focused on a problem, I try to look at what as a group, their weaknesses are where, how, 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 how is uh, their bread buttered? What is it that they can't afford to say or think? Um, What what might be an example? Well, so for example, in, in, uh, in in theoretical physics, uh, there are all sorts of shibboleths where if you can't, um say that you believe uh, that quantum mechanics is intrinsically probabilistic you're not a member of the club because it's assumed that you sort of can't accept a difficult reality um or if you can't um sign up for one of the major schools uh you have no way to get funding because you there's no one who will support your grant applications so you start to look at what causes what should be a diverse portfolio of ideas to collapse in terms of the diversity where everybody starts representing the same point of view with tiny variations. If you're looking at a problem that's never been attempted, you don't want to use intellectual arbitrage because it's just blue sky. There's no reason that the first attempts uh, to think through the problem won't yield uh, fruit. But, you know, in the case of the umbrella, um, I would start to think about, well, what, what made, what made me think, or what made one think that this was a problematic object. So count the number of moving parts that in general, as things reach final form, they, they tend to get radically simple. So if there's too many moving parts, if, um, There's some innovation that's happened since the problem was originally considered. So, for example, in the case of Oculus Rift and virtual reality, maybe virtual reality was considered years before Oculus, but nobody had rethought it in the presence of economies of scale that bring the screens and smartphones down in price. And so suddenly you have the high-quality screens that are affordable that way back when would have cost a prohibitive amount. So ask yourself, well, what's changed recently? Where is the object that currently inhabits the space violating some sort of aspect of canonical design? What do you mean by canonical design? Well, let's look at nature. Um, If I look at the... It's a great bacteria, great virus, um, called T4 bacteriophage. And if you look it up, it looks like a, a lunar lander. It's really cool. And, um, the genetic material is held in a capsule called a capsid that has the form of an icosahedron. And so you wonder something with some sides, 20 sides. There we go. <laughs> Twenty-sided Platonic solid. Wait a and second. What's a dodecahedron? Twelve. God damn it! All right. They're dual to each other. I might need to brush up on
0: my Dungeons and Dragons die <laughs> <laughs> references. Okay. So,
1: please continue. So it's a little crazy to think that, um, before Plato ever existed, nature had figured out this complicated twenty-sided object, but because it was so natural at a mathematical level, even if it was complex, uh, nature found the canonical design, even though there was no canonical designer, there was no God given, because it was a God given form. It didn't need to be thunk up, if you will, Mm -hmm. by any individual or the recent discovery of grasshoppers that use gear mechanisms for jumping. Um, you would think we'd invented gears, but in fact, gears are such a natural idea that natural selection found it long before we did. So is, is this natural idea then roughly synonymous with canonical or is
0: that a, yeah. does that have a different connotation?
1: I mean, I, I sort of think about it. If we get visited by aliens from another planet who are pretty advanced, um, they're going to know about platonic solids. They're not going to call them platonic solids because they didn't have Plato. And in fact, they were known before Plato, but these forms that really don't have a, an inventor so much as a discoverer. Got it. Got these it, are things it, that it. just sort of have to be. Mm-hmm. Okay. I took, I took us down the rabbit hole a little bit. But
0: we were talking about umbrellas. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and the number of, elements or moving pieces is uh, maybe I'm, that is a clue that something is wrong. Right. 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 It's, it's not as elegant as it should be.
1: So I would, I would, for example, immediately think about, um, you know, let's say the Japanese and their love of origami and the mathematics of paper folding. So that would be a place that I might see whether I could mine, um, that silo of expertise for any application to the umbrella. um, very often it's a question of being the first person to connect to things that have never been connected before. And that something that is a commonplace solution in one area is not thought of in another. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that it, it involves recognizing when something is likely to allow an innovation, figuring out where the information might be. And as a last resort, thinking really hard uh, about what the form of the solution might be before you actually push yourself to be concrete. I think very often you see people get very impatient with hand-waving. Well, that's a lot of hand-waving for my taste. Well, if you stay practical, you'll probably be part of a lot of incremental uh, improvements, but you may never be part of one of these uh, moments where that idea changes everything. I was reading a, a quote today, and I'm
0: blanking on this philosopher's first name, last name Dennett, maybe you know. Daniel? You know, I wanted to say that. And okay. then I said, and then I thought to myself, it sounds too much like Daniel Tammet, who's the subject of this documentary called Brain Man, but I think it is Daniel. And I'm going to butcher this, but he said something along the lines of, uh people look down upon those who say it seemed like a good idea at the time, but that is actually a sign of of brilliance in some capacity because you're able to look back and admit that uh and and have that type of self-awareness and i I apologize daniel if (laughs) i'm getting this mostly wrong but um what what do you think if you had to create a class for any grade level from ninth grade to the end of college what would the class be and when would you teach it and well, I'm going to go grab, a, I'm going to go grab a copy of this quote cause it's going to bug me, but I'm listening. Okay.
1: So it's a really interesting question. Part of the problem surrounds where would I be allowed to teach this class? So first, Anywhere you like, <laughs> um, well, the first question is, are you really allowed to deeply question your teacher or your school? Um, yes. So I would, I would look to, for example, the Milgram experiment And the Ash Conformity Experiment. So in the Ash Conformity Experiment, um, one person was led into a room and asked simple questions, which a bunch of confederates of the experimenter... Confederates, those people cooperating Mm. with the experiment. Right. Agreed to answer the the question. Actors, in in Yes, the actors uh, answer the question in an obviously wrong way. And then when it comes time for the only real... Uh, participant to answer the question, they often falsify their answer just to fit in. So you should be able to pass the ash conformity test. Um, and then there's the Milgram obedience experiment where a, uh, an experimenter appeared to ask the only participant um, to administer a series of increasing electric shocks. And it's really important that most people continue to administer the shocks, even when they heard screaming from the actor in that case, um, if they were assured that it was expected of them and that they would not be held responsible. And so I think what you're always looking for is you're looking to, for an education, which makes students unteachable by standard methods. And this is where we get into the trouble, which is, we don't talk about teaching disabilities. We talk about learning disabilities. And a lot of the kids that I want, that's so true. I think such a good way to put are it. are kids who have been labeled learning disabled, but they're actually super learners. They're like learners on steroids who have some deficits to pay for their superpower. And when teachers can't deal with this, we label those kids learning disabled to cover up from the fact that the economics of teaching require that one central actor, the teacher, be able to lead a room of 20 or more people in lockstep. Well, that's not a good, that's not a good model. And so what I want is I want to get as many of my dangerous uh, kids out of that idiom, whether it requires dropping out of high school, dropping out of college, but not for, for no purpose. Drop into something. Start creating, building, join a lab, skip college, don't So this would be,
0: uh, what was the, what was the program? Is it the, it's not 20 under 20, uh, the scholarship program that Peter Peter fellowship, the Teal fellowship. Could you describe that for people who are in, in how can you describe that in brief? And then does that, is that an example of what you're describing or is it different?
1: Well, so a lot of, um, there's a lot of confluence between how Peter, uh, thinks and how I think, even though we start from radically different places, the Teal fellowship preexisted my coming on. And it's a program that, uh, will pay kids a hundred thousand dollars over two years to leave college, to try something, um, like start a company or a nonprofit or, or do something of high agency and roughly, um, Speaking, a lot of the kids drop out of the Stanford's and Princeton's and Harvard's. They're incredibly impressive. And we're not that worried that in life they're going to be set back because they're going to do just fine under any circumstances. And they can now, in fairness, too,
0: most of those schools will allow them to come back.
1: That's true. But two years is a little bit longer than is comfortable. A lot of people understand that there's a gap year. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that we hope is is that if they do go back, they will go back – maybe as graduate students Mm -hmm. that maybe the undergraduate degree is unnecessary. In fact, we at some point did a little study and we found that for every advanced professional degree we could think of, there was somebody who held that degree who had never gotten a BA or a BS. And so the idea of skipping college, um, is now quite appealing to me. And, uh, with the idea being that a master's degree or a PhD or a JD or an MD has an embedded assumption of a BA or a BS, but in fact you'll never be asked about that lower degree um, because the the leading degree, uh, the professional degree credential, is usually the one that matters. Now, what would you say to those out there
0: who might look at your credentials and say, well, how would you have been able to obtain these very helpful uh, degrees from places like Harvard and Oxford. If you hadn't had the prerequisites set by going to undergrad, because I would imagine there are critics who would say there's a, there's a uh, survivorship bias. Sure. You hear about the Zuckerbergs, but you don't hear about the 999 other people who might drop out, but then end up feeling or being restricted in their career options because they can't show a college degree. Um, that at
1: least is a common refrain so what would you say to those people well so my undergraduate wasn't from oxford it was from penn and um there was a language requirement at the university of pennsylvania and i at the time couldn't figure out how to satisfy it so i assumed that i would not graduate from penn and then i just broke all the rules uh they had a program that actually helped you break all the rules if you could find it. And <laughs> what? We, and I've, I've I have to ask. So what? What did that look like? So it looked like one guy whose name was Mike Zuckerman. He was a professor in the history department, and he's what we would call in Yiddish a starker. He's the guy who breaks kneecaps for his people. Starker. Starker. It's like German. Starker. Like strength, Like the strong guy. The strong guy. Hmm. And so every time I would like sign up for a class that had a prerequisite, and I would be kept held back he'd get on the phone and he'd say i understand you're holding this is mike zuckerman at the office of university scholars i understand that you're holding one of my kids hostage with red tape <laughs> and you know it, it, it wasn't like he had any power but the sound of it caused uh, other professors to let go and what, what was his official job i mean it was just like the, well, the history the, the, professor oh he was okay it wasn't but, just like the secret mercenary but, no, I think in he the basement just, he, he this was a brilliant idea that he thought up and it was sort of a secret kind of a secret program. So you didn't know that it was there and it had power. It allowed you to, I think immediate access to any of Penn's graduate school was the program called university scholars. <laughs> so it sounded respectable. It sounds very respectable, right? And it was just a, an anti red tape program for kids who wanted to do research while undergraduate. And it was created by this history professor. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. and And, and this shows you what, um, you know, all through corporate America and, 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 uh, and the Ivy league universities, there are rebels who can't quite leave these institutions, but I call it the, the rebel end of corporate and the corporate end of rebel. So I end up as the corporate end of rebel, but I've always had help from the rebel end of corporate. And he was a guy who was the rebel end of corporate the rebel he, end of corporate. He was the maverick within the machine. That's right.
0: <laughs> uh, Let's switch gears a little bit because, uh, for this part one, uh, I have to get to the airport shortly. So I want to ask a couple of my favorite questions that are short questions that you don't have to give short answers to, but we'll, we'll see what we can knock off. When you think of the word successful, who's
1: the first person who comes to mind and why? Uh, Paul Dirac, because he found what must be the strangest and most bizarre, uh, piece of physics I ever hoped to encounter. How do you spell his last name? D-I-R-A-C.
0: Dirac. I don't know why I put a weird Turkish <laughs> diacritical <laughs> so mark the, on his name. You. I just really wanted to. Uh, what else can you say about him that leads you to call him successful? Is it is it just that discovery
1: or is it the way you went about it? You know, there were... Uh, uh, so I, I'm very focused on uh, physics and in the 20s and in, in, in physics in the 20th century, there were really three guys who were the main forces behind the three major equations. And what I noticed about all three of them, Einstein, Dirac, and a guy named C.N. Yang, is that they all followed the same weird path, which was to use aesthetics rather than experiment as their guide. So the entire rest of the field has had to use experiment and be in an a regular science idiom. And these are the three guys who more than anyone just sort of closed their eyes and tried to figure out, okay, how should this game go? And then prove that the world more or less uh, went the way they said it should. Now yeah. by
0: aesthetics, do you mean looking for what they perceived as beautiful or elegant? Yeah.
1: Or? Right. So the it, this is like the, Um, you know, I I often make this joke that the scientific method is the radio edit of great science. Great science doesn't look much like the story you've been told about people diligently trying to falsify things and, you know, all sorts of statistical significance. Great science looks like breaking into graveyards and digging up bodies when you know you shouldn't or trusting your aesthetic sense when the data tells you otherwise. And, uh, and and I've always loved this aspect of science. Is it's that you may want to tame this thing, it it won't be tamed. It will always be the case that the leaders of the field uh, are the uh, misfits in the back throwing spitballs, rather than the good kids who are always there on time raising their hands. <laughs> we
0: asked about books earlier, so we won't hit that. Do you have a favorite documentary or movie besides Kung Fu Panda? Um, or any that come to mind? Well,
1: there was a brilliant one, uh, that I haven't ever heard Mm -hmm. of since I saw it called rate it X, which had the great idea. Rate it it X. Yes. And it was about, um, pornographers and it was an anti pornography movie and it's, it's gambit was to just let pornographers talk at length without interruption or editing. And so, uh, it made its point by just giving these people a mic when they really shouldn't have said anything. (laughs) I thought that was absolutely ingenious.
0: Uh, I really want to watch that. Yeah. Sometimes the, the best sort of refutation and debating tactic is just letting somebody talk, (laughs) just let them (laughs) bury themselves. Uh, what $100 or less purchase has most positively impacted your life
1: in recent memory? Last six months, a year, or whatever. I just bought my punk 10 year old kid a mandolin and, uh, suddenly that's all we hear in the house. And I just think, what a completely bizarre instrument to fall in love with. And, uh, I think I got it for 98 bucks. Ooh, just on the, it's a hair's breadth away.
0: And why the mandolin
1: as opposed to a different instrument? You know, I think it's really important like we we're talking about uh with older with with uh languages that are less commonly studied. I think that uh the mandolin is the loser of an old battle between the mandolin and the guitar. It was very popular at the end of the uh nineteenth century when a bunch of I think they were called like the Italian students or the Spanish students came through and everyone went crazy for mandolins, but they weren't quite as versatile. It's the same um fingering patterns as a violin so that uh everything that you learn to pluck you can then learn to bow later but it's also compact and uh it's highly melodic in its nature so you can alternate between chords it's like a little bit of a ukulele on steroids do you have any favorite mandolin player Oh gosh. Well, there's this, this guy who just got the MacArthur Fellowship that I can't think of his name. Um, of course.
0: I'm imagining
1: there can't be that many mandolin playing MacArthur winners. Maybe I'm wrong, but I guess if you search, you know, the Marco, Marco Connor, um, who was the great bluegrass prodigy, first of violin. I think he won the fiddle championship three years in a row. They outlawed him ever winning again. So he became the flat picking champion on guitar. Uh, I think he's pretty terrific. What was David, his name again? Uh, Mark uh, O'Connor. Mark O'Connor. So the MacArthur
0: Award, this is the... Well, the, this is another... This is a different person. But yes. The MacArthur Award, for those people not familiar, it's actually a cool award worth looking into. That's called the Genius Grant, right? Yeah. Is that the nickname? Uh, do you have any particular morning rituals that are important to you? Um.
1: Okay, each morning is basically a struggle against a new day, which I view as a series of opponents who must be defeated. I'm not a morning person. So every morning I get out of bed, I'm just astounded that I've done, uh, you've gotten
0: on your feet. Well,
1: you know, there was a, was it Julian Schwinger, the great Harvard physicist, I think was asked if he would teach, uh, the 9am quantum mechanics course. And he, he stopped for a second. The person who was asking said, what's the problem? Professor Schwinger says, I don't know if I can stay up that (laughs) late."
0: So what, if you are trying to do deep creative work that requires a lot of synthesis or just, uh, as, as Naval might, Ravikant might say, (laughs) orthogonal thinking and so on. Uh, what would your what would your kind of work cycle look oh. like? When
1: do you do that type of work? So I I use a weird technique. I use coprolalia, uh, where I say <laughs> sounds, "sounds pornographic." A little bit. Uh, um, it's you, you know the strings of uh, obscenities that Tourette's patients involuntarily utter. Sure. So what I was the term. I think it's coprolalia. 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 Okay. Got it. Like just talking streams of shit. Yeah. Um. So. I find that when we use words that are prohibited to us, it tells our brain that we are inhabiting unsafe space and it's, it's a bit of a sign um, that you're going into a different mode. So I tend to become sort of facultatively autistic. That is, I think I can be social and personable if I'm trying to do that. But when I, I'm going to do deep work um, very often um, it's kind of very powerful, aggressive energy to it. It's not easy to be around. Um, it's very exacting. And I think I would probably look very autistic to people who know me to be social, uh, were they ever to see me in work mode. So how do you, how do you incite that? How do you invoke that? So do you just
0: (laughs) going back to the expression that I still, or the term, I still can't say, do you just start trying to string together as many obscenities as possible. I have, my, like a, I have my same sequence. It's
1: like an invariant mantra that I have to say. Can you share it? Or no, that, no, no, no. It's no, top no. secret. See, it's, it's like, like it's, you can't share your meditation. It's for. like TM. Yeah, exactly. How Well, just some hints then. How long is it? Um, probably takes me seven seconds to say it. <laughs> oh my God. The curiosity is killing me. Right. right. But, <laughs> but it starts to, you have to, you have to decamp from, um, normal reality where you start thinking about everything in positive terms. Well, h- how am I negatively going to impact my neighbor? No, you're, this is your time. You're stealing the time. Uh, and it's, you know, the act of creation is itself a violent action. What time of day would you typically? bring up this, this mantra and go into that mode? Well, if, uh, do you have a preferred time? Of sure. 10? Um, there's a, so this is a politically incorrect statement, but mathematicians of an older generation discussed the hour of the night when all theorems are true and all women are beautiful. <laughs> um, <laughs> the pleasure of doing math or physics at 3am when the phone stops ringing when you have no FOMO because everybody's asleep, it's a Monday night and, uh, it's just you and an expansive whiteboard. Um, that's when the magic happens. Yeah. Unfortunately for my social life, that's
0: also when I do my, not saying it's good, but my <laughs> best writing and synthesis happens. Yeah. Is that uh, right? Yeah. It's, it's typically between one and 5am.
1: I find um, five, Uh,
0: stuff that I come up with is a little bit unreliable. Five is only if I've managed to catch the wave. Oh, nice. That's the wave you've been waiting for for like an entire season of mental surfing. And you're like, okay, there's no way I can paddle in now and miss that set that's coming. And you just have to to ride it, at least... uh, I, what I will do is ride it until I just collapse from exhaustion. If okay. I have it, if the muse has somehow been captured in the bottle,
1: I mean, I may cycle over a 24-hour. I, I may not go to sleep in that yeah. state, but you know that's that's rare. It's not. You have to, yeah. I, it is rare for me, also,
0: not to compare the uh, the funny how-to stuff that I write to complex physics. Uh, if you could have one billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say?
1: One billboard. Anything on it? Um, just because a large number of well-credentialed experts believe something in common doesn't mean that it's necessarily wrong. But if they've reached consensus, that's the way to bet. Some Somehow, people have to learn that Consensus is a huge problem. If there's no arithmetic consensus because it doesn't require a consensus, but there is a Washington consensus, there is a uh, climate consensus. In general, consensus is how we bully people into pretending that uh, there's nothing to see, you know, move along, everyone. And so I think that in part you should start to learn that when people are people don't naturally come to high levels of agreement of agreement unless something is either absolutely clear, in which case consensus isn't um, present or there's an implied threat of violence to livelihood or self.
0: What advice would you give to your 30 year old self? And if you could just place us in
1: time, what were you doing at that age? Um, so when I was, uh, 30, I guess I was still struggling to stay in or get out of academics. And I think what I didn't realize is that the structure of the universities was that they were either hitting steady state or growing very, very little or shrinking. And that was a, not a healthy place to be because most of the good seats in the musical chairs competition had already been found in the 60s and they had occupants. And we were in some sort of a game where we were doing work for the system, but we weren't set to inherit it. And I think what I needed to do was to decamp and to realize that technology was going to be a boom area. And even though I wanted to do science rather than technology, it's better to be in an expanding world and not quite in exactly the right field than to be in a contracting world where people's worst behavior comes out and, uh, your mind is grooved in defensive and uh, rent seeking types of ways that I just, life is too short to be petty and defensive and, and cruel to other people who are seeking to innovate alongside you.
0: And the last question, maybe the last of one or two, uh, that doesn't make any sense, but now here we go. Uh, do you have any ask or requests for my audience, for people listening, anything they should think on do or
1: otherwise? Um, well, first of all, I would really like a high quality umbrella from one of you <laughs> just to prove the point that that was actually a reasonable problem to set. Um, I guess what I would, uh, really like is for those of you who've been told that you're learning disabled or you're not good at math or that you're terrible, uh, at music or something like that. Um, seek out unconventional ways of, of proving that wrong. Believe, uh, not only in yourselves, but that there are structures that are powerful enough to make things that look very difficult, much easier than you ever imagined. That is great advice. And for those people
0: there who particularly have this music insecurity, as I do, uh, one thing that is, is, seems seemed to me like a life raft in the sea of complexity is the, uh, the three chord song by the Axis of Awesome. Four chords. Oh god! I knew I was going to do that. Four chord song. There we go. So you can look that up on YouTube or elsewhere for uh, a real hilarious, but also um, sort of potential, uh, potential. What the hell am I trying to say here? I just ran out of caffeine. This is the moment that no, I no, had. no,
1: no, no. It's sort of like it's,
0: it's a it's an am- amazing uh, act it, that they put together, which shows you how complexity can be created through simplicity or per, or, or,
1: or Perceived complexity. Well, it, and it shows you that your mind has stored over a hundred songs that you think of as being completely different uh, In different places, even though there was a simple fact uh, Draw bringing them all together You know, I, I I liken it to the moment that people realize that in almost every uh, advertisement for wristwatches, the watches are set to 10, 10. Um, and before you realize that uh, it, you can't really believe that it's true, but afterwards you realize that the world has just uh, pulled one over on you <laughs> because ten ten looks like a smile to watch advertisers. Ah,
0: I guess it's very symmetrical, isn't it? Yeah. Uh,
1: but what's funny is, is that, is that the wisdom has crept into the to the point that sometimes you'll see digital watch ads and they'll still be set to ten ten, even though it doesn't look like a smile
0: so i'm gonna i'm just gonna throw out a teaser here because we don't have time to get into it today but you and i have privately spoken quite a bit about psychedelics uh i am uh, either by the time people hear this or very shortly going to be uh, helping to raise funds for a very interesting study that johns hopkins is putting together Um, you said to me not too long ago, uh, something along the lines of you'd be amazed or you wouldn't believe how straight and narrow I was for so
1: long. When was the first time that you tried psychedelics? Um, relatively recently. Uh, and it was because I was, I had been propagandized so thoroughly that even to this day, uh, I don't like the association. I don't like the word cloud around them. Um, there were all sorts of confusions that the power, uh, of one of these substances must, uh, come from killing brain cells, like pouring acid on your brain and leaving it as Swiss cheese. Uh, it wasn't until I started meeting, um, some of the most intellectually gifted people, uh, in the sciences and beyond, and I realized that. Uh this was sort of the open secret uh, of what I call the hallucinogenic elite, uh, whether it's billionaires or Nobel laureates or um, inventors and, and coders that a lot of these people uh, were using these agents uh, either for creativity or to gain access to the things that are so difficult to get access to through therapy and other conventional means. So, um, Tune in next time when you'll hear Tim say,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I will dig into this, into this font of knowledge, this gold mine and, uh, give a Google guys search, uh, my name and Johns Hopkins. By the time you hear this, uh, you might see some very interesting stuff up about this and you could actually get involved and learn a lot more about it. But before that, and in closing, I suppose I should ask, where can people find you on the internet? Where can they ping you if they want to share with you their incredible origami umbrella solution?
1: <laughs> uh, um, that's a good question. On, I'm, I'm on
0: Twitter or wherever you might
1: be more sure. active than less. Yes. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Eric R Weinstein. Um, and you can find some of my essays at edge.org Um, particularly one on professional wrestling as a metaphor for living in a constructed and false reality.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Eric, I love hanging out. This is always so much fun and I appreciate you taking the time to join us and to brainstorm and share your wisdom with uh, me and with everybody
1: listening. Thank you so much. Tim, thanks for inviting me into your world and, uh, allowing me to talk to your base. All right, folks. So let us know what you think.
0: Definitely say hi to Eric at Eric R. Weinstein. Say hi to me also. If you have any feedback, if you'd like to hear around two at T Ferris, T-F-E-R-R-I-S-S on Twitter. And until next time, thank you for listening. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday